little song about a man called Goth and a little boy who wanted to be tied with the same brush. He learned Latin, held his head up high. Hello and welcome to Pot on the Hill Labor's weekly podcast. I'm Stephen Donnelly and this is episode 31. And don't forget, you can subscribe to Pot on the Hill every week via iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favourite podcast app. And if you have any questions or comments or feedback on the show, please email us at podcast at uh, vic.alp.org.au. Before I introduce today's guest, remember that Labor currently is in a by-election battle with the Greens political party uh, for the inner Melbourne seat of Northcote. Uh, the Northcote by-election will be held on November 18, and Labor's Claire Burns is running. She's a local... Uh, speech pathologist and trade union organiser. And if you want to support Claire and Labor's grassroots campaign, please go to thisislabor.org forward slash Claire, that's C-L-A-R-E, as in the county, uh, to join our fantastic team of Community Action Network volunteers up there in Thornbury. Our campaign offers actually, if you want to drop in, is 623 High Street in Thornbury. Uh, and we've got, uh, we're running nightly phone banks, door knock shifts, and huge weekends of door knocks as well. So if you want to get involved, go to that. This is labor.org forward slash Claire and uh, sign up and one of our organisers will give you a call. Now today's special guest on Pot on the Hill is British Labor politician Peter Mandelson. Uh, Peter served as a Labor MP for Hartlepool from 1992 to 2004 and held a number of cabinet positions under the Prime Ministers Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, including Secretary for Trade and Industry and Secretary for Northern Ireland. Uh, and now sits uh, on the benches of the House of Lords as a baron, I do believe. Uh, Peter is visiting Australia in his capacity as a chairman for uh, the strategic advisory firm Global Council. Uh, Peter, welcome to Melbourne and welcome to Pot on the Hill. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I would, uh, it would be uh, true of me to say that this is the first time we've had a lord on the podcast. <laughs> I don't, do I Get over it. <laughs> <laughs> do, I, do I refer to you as my lord or my liege or... No, Peter will do. Excellent. Uh, now, what, is, what was your pathway into Labor politics? Um, for a lot of those people out there that don't know who Peter Mandelson is, how did you come to become who you are today? My path into Labor politics followed my personal beliefs and convictions, which are the same as what the Labor Party stands for. The Labor Party is an egalitarian Party, all its policies, the purpose of all its policies is to lean against inequalities in society. Uh, its belief in solidarity in society between those who are better off and those who want more. Also, internationalism is very important to me, solidarity not just within society with those who are less well-off than yourself, but also solidarity between countries and between peoples, as well as the duty that we have uh, to the environment. And th these are the beliefs that have always powered the British Labour Party, and they are, as I say, what I have believed in all my life. I mean, in a sense, I was born into the Labour Party as well. My family was a strong Labour family. My mother's father was a Labour politician. He founded the Labour Party in London in the early part of the last century and went on to become Deputy Prime Minister under Attlee uh, in the post-war Labour uh, government. So in that sense, the Labour movement is my tribe mm. and the Labour Party is my church. And I joined it, I've never left it, and I don't intend to. Who were the strongest influences in your life that helped shape who you are today? 
Well, without doubt, my family, my parents, um, they were um, very left-leaning. Uh, my father ended up somewhat more left-leaning than uh, than I was. He became a, a bit of a cheerleader for Tony Benn uh, and his hard-left crew, who did so much, in my view, to divide the Labour Party in the 1980s and mm. nearly drove us over a cliff. That was the, the our last near-death experience as a, as a party. But they were very, very decent, very tolerant people. Um, they had a, such a sense of uh, responsibility uh, towards others. But what they always knew and what they always argued was that there's no point in having beliefs and then sitting back and not doing anything about them, that political activism is what brings about change. It's the Labour Party which is the principal vehicle for change uh, in our society and that the way in which we run the economy and the way in which we um, support business but then distribute the fruits of the, our economy uh, across society is what is most important uh, and it's the Labour Party who does that better than anyone else and that's why you should vote Labour and uh, my earliest memories were you know, careering around our neighbourhood on my tricycle between polling stations and committee rooms taking polling numbers so as to knock the vote out I did that I don't know, I think from the age of five or six onwards. I've never stopped, you see. <laughs> Clearly. Well, that was my follow-up question was, when was that crystallising moment that you wanted to become an activist? But it sounds like because of your parents. No, 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 I was always an activist. There's no question about that. The question was, um, you know, do I want to go into politics? And uh, And that question was answered very soon after I left university and I went to work as in the economic department of the Trades Union Congress, the T Trade Union Centre in Britain. I was the lowest form of professional life in the economic department. I was the guy who took the notes of meetings for others to write up the draft minutes to be submitted to the person above to approve the minutes uh, subsequently to be signed off by the General Secretary. I was literally at the bottom of the pile in the TUC, but always at the same time active politically as well. Indeed, I was so active politically that in the end the TUC and I parted company. They believed that their civil service working for the trade union movement shouldn't even be local councillors, let alone anything else. And mm. Uh, I was somebody who had opinions. I was active in the youth movement uh, in Britain. I was a campaigner on youth unemployment. I was on a collision course uh, with my employers in the TUC from the, uh, the word go. Um, and then I went from there uh, basically to work as a researcher uh, in, in, in Parliament. I had a spell in television. My parents persuaded me in the early 1980s, that it would be better to have at least some set of professional qualifications to follow some sort of recognisable career path. So I went into current affairs television, it being the nearest thing to politics mm -hmm. uh, that I could find that paid me slightly more than being in politics. But I was soon out of that and back uh, when Neil Kinnock, the new leader of the Labour Party, 
uh, was rescuing us from uh, the abyss that we were facing and <laughs> looking down into in the 1980s. He reorganized the party headquarters, and at the age of 31, indeed on my birthday, uh, I became Neil Kinnock's campaign and communications director, basically on because I just had that short experience in television, and therefore he assumed that I knew how to handle the media. I didn't, but I soon learned. <laughs> you uh, were attributed the term the Prince of Darkness. Oh, that was much later on. Yeah. That, that was Kirker 1990s, not, right, 1980, okay. Okay, well, not 1980s. We're going to hold that thought then for a moment. <laughs> hold that thought. Um, but you, you Since going into the House of Lords, of course, I've also become known as the Dark Lord. It's a graduation from Prince of Darkness. But we're going ahead of ourselves. We are. Um, <laughs> but you, uh, you played a, a, a big role in the, two th- sorry, in, the, in the 1987 election campaign um, in which... Um, it's when we hauled down the red flag, which was still the campaigning symbol of the Labour Party, uh, and put the red rose up in its place. And we harvested tens of thousands of red roses and scattered them across the nation um, in the election campaign of that year, 1987, where we came back from the early opinion polls that had us in third place. Mm. By that time, remember, the the new party, the Social Democratic Party, the breakaway from the Labour Party had been created, and we were caught in quite a nasty vice between you know, the Tories on our right, the SDP uh, breathing down our necks, and we had to basically rescue ourselves from oblivion. And what we did in that election was come back from... Not from the dead exactly, but we were pretty near being written off. Uh, And we saw off the SDP, didn't defeat the Conservatives and Mrs Thatcher, but reinstated ourselves as the main opposition party uh, to the Conservatives. And uh, uh, the campaign was, uh, you know, it was a sort of uh, rip-roaring campaign. Um, Wonderful razzmatazz, great glitz, thousands of red roses, as I said, wonderful oratory uh, by Neil Kinnock. Um, And it's what our satirical magazine, Private Eye, subsequently dubbed as Labour's brilliant election defeat. Mm. We didn't win. We were a long way from winning, but we came back uh, and we created, basically, the... uh, the platform on which the Labour Party could then subsequently ch- change, um, rebuild, uh, but it then took another ten years mm. before we won the general election. The, the, the lessons that campaigners, the good campaigners, learn from from election defeat are important. What were some of the lessons that you guys learned from 1987? That. Um, how you use the media to present yourselves, the discipline with which you do so, uh, the media techniques, all very important in the running of a modern professional election campaign. But at the end of the day, what people are voting for is not how you look, but what you stand for and the policies that will change and improve their lives. And I've sometimes described the 1987 election, the first election that I directed as uh, as campaign director of the party, as uh, 
as a spray paint election campaign. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, we sort of spray painted <laughs> the outside of the Labour Party, but it was still, you know, the old unconditioned, non-re-engineered, you know, jalopy yeah. of a vehicle uh, that it had become by that stage. Uh, and, you know, the paint lasted for the duration of the campaign, but I think it started to sort of peel away and people could see the old Labour Party pushing through. And we needed to do much more with and about the Labour Party, and we certainly needed to equip ourselves with uh, much stronger um, um, vote-winning policies than those uh, that we had in the 1980s. Uh, we really had to recondition not just the exterior, the external, the external um, uh, appearance of the Labour Party, uh, but we had in many senses to change its outlook. The Labour Party had become associated in the public's mind with the past, with disunity, with divisions. That was the legacy of uh, Tony Benn and his hard left uh, followers who'd done so much to tear apart the Labour Party uh, in, in, in the 1980s. The leading light of which movement, by the way, is now the leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn. We'll probably come on to him, but he was one of the main standard bearers in the early 1980s mm. uh, of, of Tony Benn. Um, the Labour Party as a whole just had to become not less a party of working people uh, 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 and of the working class in Britain, but of the aspirational working class, people you know who didn't see themselves as being at the bottom of the pile, people who wanted to get on uh, in life, people who wanted to uh, better themselves, their housing, their jobs, opportunities uh, for their children. They wanted better schools, a better health service. They wanted more and better. And the Labour Party, frankly, had begun to look not like a, a party that could deliver that, but that was essentially trading on its past achievements, you know, what it had done in, the, you know, in, in previous decades rather than what it, was, what it had to offer in the coming decades. And that's why the revamp of the Labour Party couldn't simply be done for within a single general election. Uh, we created, as I say, the platform for what we did subsequently, but we needed a lot more, uh, uh, not just to end the divisions of the Labour Party and bring unity to it, but to modernise its outlook and its policies as well, and that's what we did in the, did in the 1990s. And that's a good segue into the 1990s, because you stood for the seat of Hartlepool in the... In 1992. Yeah. yeah. Um, that... Never forgiven, by the way, by Neil Kinnock, who who wanted me to stay as the campaign director rather than fight a seat of my own in 92. Um, he's just about started to forgive me now, but it's taken <laughs> a long time. <laughs> well, that was my question. So you've, you've had to make this decision here because you were in a position in which you could um, have a great say in the way in which the party can run an election campaign. Instead, you've chosen to move into the parliamentary wing. Um, what... Look, I felt I had given my all in the 80s. Um, I was, in a sense, a bit worried that I couldn't um, do it all over again. I mean, the 
the election in 1987 was, I mean, a, um, well, I wouldn't say it was a searing experience, but I was young, I was inexperienced. Um, you know, I walked through fire for the party in that election. But I also felt that that's not something I could keep doing and that I had to do something else for and in the party. And I wanted to have a shot at being a, a, an MP. Uh, I said to Neil uh, that I'll just look, I'll just, I'll just try once. I'll have one shot at a selection. Uh, and if I don't succeed, I'll be back running the next campaign for you. And he said, kid, he said, you know, you're going for a seat in the northeast of England. He said, with the best will in the world, they're not going to have you. Mm. You know, you're not their type. You don't come from their, those parts. Um, they're going to choose somebody else. I don't want you to embarrass yourself. I said, well, let me have one shot and see what happens. After the selection, I came back and he looked at me. He said, I should have known. I should have known that you'd knock on every single door and turn over every stone looking for support in the party in that selection. And you spent a year doing it. I didn't think you'd pull it off, but you did. And I'm sorry you're leaving, but well done. Mm. <laughs> and you were, you've entered into Parliament and you've met people like Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. Um, well, by then I had. Yep. Uh, and what I saw in then was both, I mean, a tremendous sort of vigour, a really modern outlook and sense of what the Labour Party had to become in order to build up uh, a real coalition of support that we needed if we were going to uh, obtain the majority that we needed to be an effective government, but also two people who were just incredibly professional in their approach uh, and in their communications. And they... they um, yeah, they were also 24-7 people. Um, they really wanted the Labour Party to win. And they worked together tremendously. And I, uh, I became uh, the third musketeer, uh, in a sense. You've given some context um, about the, the state of the Labour Party in the 1980s. Um, and for those people who are not aware of the, the, the definition of new Labour... But talk us through, because you, you've seen as one of the architects of New Labour. Well, it wasn't just about unifying the Labour Party. That was very, very important. I mean, given uh, the searing battles that we had gone through after we lost office in 1979, we were facing the capture of the Labour Party by the hard left. And the pitch battles that were fought to you know, defend the Labour Party from that takeover, we came within a whisker uh, of losing the party. And that, I think, yeah. would have been the end. I mean, we'd have become a, a rump, hard-left party. But what was needed was something, you know, much bigger uh, than that. As I say, you know, we, we needed to be the party of the whole of the country uh, and not just the sort of traditional heartlands uh, of the party. We needed to become the party not just of you know, the older party voters and supporters, but, but the young and the new whose take on politics was becoming very different. 
we needed the support of people who really wanted to better themselves. They, they liked our brand, they shared our values, but, but many people felt that we weren't in the business of you know, giving them the, the serious leg up and the opportunities uh, to, uh, 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 to achieve more and to do more for themselves and their families than they had in the past. And it was therefore partly the outlook of the party and but it was also, I don't know, making the Labour Party an effective vehicle for the pursuit and the application of the values we held. People, people didn't dispute our values. They didn't dispute or dislike what we stood for. They just questioned our ability uh, to be an effective political force to realize uh, those values uh, and those goals. And we had to be, therefore, not just a united party, but also a modern party with coherent policies that, you know, ones that didn't just rely on more tax, more spending. Uh, people wanted to see us as a party that could run the economy and help generate and create wealth and not just spend it <laughs> and not just distribute it. And we really had to marry economic competence with our belief in social justice in just a completely new way that seemed relevant at the end of the last century uh, as, we, as we face the millennium. And that, in a very real sense, is what Tony and Gordon and the rest of us uh, who made uh, New Labour were about. It wasn't about ditching our past. It wasn't about burying our history. It wasn't about uprooting ourselves. I felt very strongly, very passionately, being a Labour guy all my life, um, that, you know, if you, if you lose your history, if you start uprooting yourself, then you're going to start drifting, you're going to lose your identity, and your brand will fade. I didn't want that. I just wanted, though, the modern expression of what Labour was about and what it stood for and what it could do for people to be recognised as such and embraced as such by people you know, who, as I said, were younger, more aspirational, um, who saw themselves as middle class rather than working class, you know, who lived in, you know, in the towns and suburbs as well as the cities. I mean, the new Labour appeal didn't recognise class, geographic or age boundaries. You know, there were no no-go areas uh, for new Labour at that time in the 1990s. Not because we were all things to all people. We were one very clear thing, but it was something that people from so many different backgrounds could believe in and invest in and could trust to deliver. That's what new Labour was about. Having the challenge of modernising a party and getting itself set to become uh, or have policy offerings to, a, to an electorate is one thing um, and a challenge in itself. Uh, but then to communicate that to an electorate is the next step. What were some of the successes that you could look back to as you prepared for 1997 that enabled the Labor Party to deliver this message of New Labor, New Britain uh, to the electorate? How did you go about achieving that? The person who delivered it more than any other was Blair. 
I mean, Blair was and remains an incredibly effective communicator, but it's very rooted in belief, it's rooted in argument, it's, and he takes his argument from first principles. You know, he's a, he, he's a speech maker, not a rabble rouser. He knows how to take complex issues and policies and distill them in argument and messages that people can grasp and understand. But that, of course, is what the whole art of political communication is about. It's about taking complex subjects, distilling them in an argument and in messages uh, that resonate with people, that they can grasp and understand uh, and say, yeah, that's what I believe in. That's what I want. That's what I want to vote for. I'm going to, I trust that. I trust that team. They're, they're what I stand for. They're, they're, that's what, they're what I want in life. Now, how you communicate that, it has to be, it's not just simply polished and disciplined, both of which things are important, but you have to have argument. And, you know, increasingly what I feel in the face of the sort of populism and nationalism that we've had to face in Britain as well as other parts of uh, uh, Europe, I feel that too many of us have, have been silenced. There are too many, too many politicians, radical politicians, who nonetheless stand in the centre ground of, of, of politics, don't take arguments on. Uh, it, 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 and this is really, really important that in the face of the slogans and the sort of empty rhetoric uh, of populists, uh, whether they be of the left or the right, we have rather more complicated arguments to make. But how we make those arguments takes skill. It takes persuasion. It also takes passion. And if you don't have those things, then you're not going to persuade people or take people with you. And you mustn't be cowed into silence or to, or to submission just because, you know, these people seem to be on a roll. But it's difficult. It's difficult to sort of stand up for yourself, for your beliefs, and how you see the world and the arguments you want to make, essentially, uh, from the centre ground, uh, when there are extremists, whether people or arguments or policies or slogans, either on the left or the right, who are drowning you out. Mm. You've got to stand up for what you believe in. You've got to face back, face down people, push back uh, in order to get yourself a hearing. And we're doing too little of that now. But perhaps I'm, perhaps I'm racing ahead of, the, of our conversation. <laughs> we, we, we certainly will uh, cover that. I, I just wanted uh, to touch on one thing uh, around that time of, um, in the, in the mid-90s uh, with the launch of New Labour, which also coincided with this... Uh, positive explosion of British expression and culture through the arts um, that had, you know, had been sort of then described by like things like NME as Cool Britannia and, and this sort of the, the Britpop movement and whatnot. Um, there's a great book called The Last Party that sort of intertwines um, the... Yeah, we didn't create cool, set out to create Cool Britannia. That, that's not something that I was conscious of at the time at all. But there was a sense in the 1990s that Britain wasn't good at, at anything anymore, that everyone was overtaking us, that we sort of couldn't compete in the world. Mm. But we had... That's because your cricket team's hopeless. <laughs> I know, and I'm sorry about that, but we've got some brilliant footballers. But we also have brilliant 
artists, performing artists. We have a, you know, a, a creativity uh, in, in in Britain, and they derive confidence from us. I mean, we were a very confident force in British politics in the 1990s. We believed in the country. We believed in its future. We believed in doing things in a in a different way. We deeply believed that Britain could do better. And that found expression uh, in the creative community and performing artists. Uh, and they absorbed it and communicated it as well. I mean, the, the way in which they performed had a new confidence, a greater self-belief. And it, we created a sort of, without realizing it or even trying to do it, a sort of a movement, if you like, uh, uh, we can do better and we believe in Britain and we can be a, 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 a more decent and fairer society but also a more prosperous one and a more equal one. And that was a huge driving force, a tremendous sense of belief that people had in themselves, in, our, in their country and what we could achieve together. Uh, and the creative world was part of that. I want to read a quote to you uh, and get your thoughts on this particular quote, it's from Noel Gallagher, who um, from Oasis said at the 1996 Brit Awards, so this is a year out from the general election, and he said, there are seven people in this room who are giving a little bit of hope to young people in this country. That's me, our kid, he goes on to name the other members of Oasis, Alan McGee and Tony Blair. Uh, and if uh, you've got anything about you, you'll go up there and you'll shake Tony Blair's hand. Um, he's the man, power to the people. Having... Uh, Oasis, who at that point in time are the biggest band, not just in Britain, but arguably in the world, mm. get up at the Brit Awards and give this endorsement to the opposition leader. Well, we didn't organise it and we didn't ask him to, but he did. Uh, and many others did too. And it was a real expression of confidence, a renewal uh, of the country. You know, we were coming up for 18 years of conservative rule. They were pulling themselves apart. They were fighting like ferrets in a sack. I mean, members of the Conservative cabinet were laying siege on a daily basis to their own Conservative Prime Minister. Sounds familiar uh, to you? Perhaps in Australia? Well, that was what was going on, and people were absolutely fed to the back teeth with it. They wanted a new team, a new beginning, and fresh hope. That's what New Labour offered. Uh, and the way in which Noel Gallagher and others expressed that was it just became very important. It, it created, as I say, a sort of spontaneous movement uh, in the country. As a political party, you couldn't organise it. No. You couldn't conjure it up yourself. You couldn't sort of pull a lever or press a button in party headquarters and suddenly activate it. It happened. And it was a tremendous life force. Those things that are organic are the greatest in, in those campaign moments. Yeah. 20 years on since 1997 and, and, and the years of the, the Blair and Brown government, um, having myself got, have family in Scotland and travel back a bit and speak to them, all Labor supporters up until recently. Um, they, are they now nationalists uh, in yeah, Scotland? Yeah, Scottish nationalists? Yeah, they are. Um, and I only just got back from the, the UK last month and I sat down and had quite lengthy conversations over a cup of tea with them about that. But... Um, Thinking about all of the achievements that the Blair and Brown governments achieved for Britain, um, 
the, the war in Iraq seems to have, I think, unfairly uh, uh, glossed or tarnished what was achieved by those governments. Um, I want to get your reflections on, on that. Well, I think that people who were never New Labour in the first place and were always politically opposed to it have used Iraq and the Iraq war uh, as a handy stick with which to beat New Labour and Blair in particular. Um, I understand why. It, it was uh, an intervention in Iraq in which we followed the United States. We followed President Bush because in the wake of 9-11 we thought that was important, that uh, the last thing the world needed and the international system needed was America isolated and fighting alone, that that would be bad uh, for international relations in the future. We'd also been wrestling with Saddam Hussein for very, very many years. This is a man, you know, who was genocidal in, you know, in, in, in his actions and his behaviour. He used chemical weapons against his own people and killed en masse in defiance of the United Nations. When, we, when the invasion of Iraq took place, uh, and by the way, I voted in favour of it as a member of part, Labour member of Parliament at the time, it was the culmination of many attempts uh, to deal with him and his bloody regime. Now, did it go as planned? Was it well executed? Uh, did it have many unforeseen consequences? Yes, it did. And I respect those who say it was a mistake, but I would contend that it was an honest mistake, if it was one at all. Uh, it, it wasn't about taking the country to war on a lie. It wasn't about deception. It, 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 it wasn't self-glorying in any way. It was, it, it was as I say, uh, the culmination of policies and actions that were being pursued against Saddam Hussein. Um, and yes, it was very divisive. It was divisive in Britain. It was divisive across Europe. Uh, those divisions were deep, and for many, they have remained lasting. Uh, but to judge the entire Labour government in its whole economic and social record and the transformation of Britain in so many different respects uh, that were powered by uh, the Labour government, to sort of judge all that by Iraq is absurd. And in my view, those who do so are motivated uh, by their desire to discredit New Labour, to discredit Blair, because they were uh, they were always opposed to it. They always politically disagreed with it, so it's not surprising that they should use it to discredit us now. If we fast forward to contemporary politics and talk about Brexit, um, I'm keen to get your thoughts on um, how the Labour Party handled the referendum in the first place. Um, and what implications has this referendum, or will this referendum have on the, the, the concept of the United Kingdom um, and also as and, and Europe as an, as an entity? And just reading some of your remarks just recently about the implications that Brexit will have on, uh, on, the, on Ireland and the north of Ireland and the Good Friday Agreement, um, what that means in terms of how Scotland is behaving. Look, Brexit is going to have massive ramifications actually for Britain but also for Europe as a whole 
let's not forget why the referendum was called in the first place. It was called and the entire public were enlisted in order to help resolve an internal dispute in the British Conservative Party. You know, they couldn't resolve their differences over Europe, uh, so they gave the decision to the British people to take. And not surprisingly, the British people took a decision about Europe uh, on the basis of a whole mass of different issues and considerations, uh, grievances and anger. And, you know, when people ask me, why is there such turbulence in British politics? How could we have voted as we did in a referendum uh, on, on our membership of the European Union? How could we change the course uh, of Britain's economy and its politics in such a radical way? You know, on the basis of one vote on one day in June in 2016, and I think more than anything else, it is the backlash from and the ramifications of the global financial crisis that did more than anything else to colour politics and to shake up the uh, 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 settled consensus in Britain uh, about Europe. It made many people, for completely justifiable reasons, uh, very angry. They saw the banking crisis ten years ago as a result of policy mistakes made by a business and political elite uh, for which they've had to pay the price ever since. Don't blame them for being angry. But to convert that into a, into a vote to, to redirect the whole course of the UK economy and our trade to take us out of uh, uh, that huge European market which takes half our exports... Come on. Um, I'm afraid it was a triumph of... Well, it was a triumph of nationalism over sort of rational economic argument. It was a triumph of... And it has been ever since by the Conservatives and every decision they've taken following the referendum, driven by politics, not economics. But I'm afraid at the time, people were, people were not in the mood for facts. They weren't in the mood for evidence. They weren't in the mood for a sort of rational economic argument. They were cross. They wanted to show it. And they took us, gave a huge kicking uh, to the whole British establishment. Uh, and their chosen means of doing so, which was offered to them on a plate, was the referendum on Europe. If we're in this age, this political age of, of populism right now with what we've seen uh, across the Atlantic in the election of Donald Trump um, and the Brexit uh, referendum result. How does progressive politics, social democratic progressive politics, continue to be popular? Because that's what it, essentially a democracy is in the age of populism. It has to retain its belief in itself, what it stands for. It has to, be, has to have the... equip itself with the confidence and the arguments... Uh, to push back against the populism or the extremism, either of the right uh, or the left. But we make a mistake when we, if when we do that, we simply defend the status quo. That's our mistake. It's the mistake of those of us in the mainstream of politics, on the centre ground of politics, that we're put onto the defensive that were asked to justify our actions in the past, to defend the status quo, whereas what we should be doing, what we have to do, 
is to paint a picture of the future and to offer a, a better future for people rather than simply an explanation of the past or a defense of the present. And that's what we've got to break out of. The, uh, the ascendancy of Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn as leader, uh, you've been critical in the media of that. Um, we had um, uh, John McTiernan on the podcast just before the election, and John made some bold predictions about the outcome, um, which were largely incorrect. Um, and I've subsequently spoke to John since then. Um, they were incorrect because the Conservative Party and its campaign and its leader, Theresa May, sort of blew up. Um, you know, uh, 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 on the takeoff pad. I mean, you know, Theresa May basically called an election which nobody wanted, saw no justification for, and then didn't really turn up for it. She she was she was like the sort of invisible uh, uh, hand in that election, and people not only resented her having called it in the first place. Uh, they were furious that having done so, she then didn't present any policies or make any arguments or engage the public in any sensible way. I mean, people across the country were furious, uh, and Jeremy Corbyn and Labour were the beneficiary of that. So, you know, with that election in which they were, Labour were um, a surprise in terms of their result, albeit did not win... What I feel like the hard work now for for Labor and for Corbyn in terms of his leadership is what they do over the next four years. Um, what does Jeremy Corbyn? What does Labor need to do in order to win at the next election? I read an article uh, a couple of weeks ago. They were talking about um, what was it? The one more one more surge or one more one more heave, heave. One more heave which is an expression. Look, the first thing that Jeremy Corbyn has to do is to make a choice between a desire to unite the party or a desire to control it and at the moment he's pursuing the second of those two things he wants control he wants control for his side his people his faction it's classic ultra-left tactics you take control of the party you turn it into a movement uh, you persuade the working people of the uh, of the country to break out of their false consciousness and turn themselves into real socialists uh, and create a revolutionary movement. Now, he wouldn't put it in that way, but that's essentially what they're about. Now, why are they showing signs of success? On the surface, they're successful because the political mood of the country is very rebellious. They feel that mainstream parties of the centre-left or centre-right sort of bear a collective or joint responsibility uh, for what's gone wrong. They feel that too many politicians are from central casting and sound as if you know they're reading off a script or an autocue, whereas Jeremy Corbyn doesn't, that he has a sort of authenticity, a naturalness, which is particularly appealing uh, to young people. Uh, who want a different sort of politics. Now, I would contend that Jeremy Corbyn is not a different sort of politics. He's a throwback in politics to a set of policies and attitudes uh, that Britain has long ago grown out of. In, in a sense, we're seeing a sort of 
uh, sort of competition between a Conservative Party and a Corbyn-led Labour Party that have different versions of the past that they want to leave Britain back to. Uh, I mean, it's, a, it, it, it's the opposite of a beauty parade, mm. whether it be of people or, or ideas. But Jeremy Corbyn is benefiting from that angry, anti-establishment, anti-elite mood, a desire of people to punish and to give you know, the mainstream parties and politicians a good kicking. Now, question, will that actually be enough to convert enough voters, win enough Tory-held seats in enough parts of the country, notably in England, as well as seeing the party able to recover in Scotland, in order to win a victory and form a majority Labour government. Now, I'm not saying no and I'm not saying never because, frankly, the way the Tories are behaving is as if they want to give the next ele uh, election on a plate to Labour. Uh, they have so little to offer. Uh, the, their policies, the personalities, the way they're fighting each other over Brexit... It's, it's a disgusting spectacle, and the public hate it. So I'm not saying that the Labour Party can't win, but what would we be winning for or with and to do? And in my view, taking Britain back to the 60s and the 70s and the sorts of policies that we had uh, then are not a solution uh, to what Britain needs in the 21st century. I want to ask you a question just quickly on industry um, before we wrap up, um, and that is, which do you think is the bigger threat to, to the workforce in 2017? Is it uh, automation and robots, or is it big data? Or China. <laughs> or all three. I, um, I'm not anti-tech. I'm not an anti-technology guy. Uh, but I do recognise that... Uh, the big tech companies uh, can operate new forms of monopoly power, you know, which, if they're not properly managed and regulated, uh, will pose a threat not just to people's jobs, um, but to their privacy, their living standards, um, their employment status. Too many tech companies see themselves not just as a force which is reshaping the world, which they are in many respects, uh, but uh, uh, as a force that's a sort of above the law, that's bigger than government. It's almost bigger than the people that they serve. And we need to engage the tech companies. Uh, um, we've, you know, we've long, long operated antitrust laws. You know, we don't want to be taken hostage or captive by you know, big monopoly providers of goods or services and the power that that gives private capital. And so we've regulated it. But there's a new form, as I say, of monopoly power, and that is in the ownership and the control of data, its sharing, uh, in a completely unaccountable way. Now, we have to engage the tech companies in dialogue about that because um, big data offers us huge opportunities for improvement, enriching society, uh, delivering 
uh, not just private services, but public services and government in a much more transparent and accountable way. Now, for all these and other purposes, we need to harness the power of big data. But that power cannot belong to private hands alone. It has to be, it has to operate, as it were, in the public interest, in the public's name, and the job of government is to make sure that happens, not by operating against the tech companies, but working with them in order to make sure uh, that technology and data uh, remain our servant and don't become our master. How fragile is the European Union now because of Brexit going forward? And this, we're seeing this, uh, this self-determination movement in Catalonia. You may be surprised, it's in a way rather perverse, that Brexit has had a unifying effect on the European Union. Um, just as Donald Trump, by the way, has had a unifying effect on Europe. Well, it's I mean, made Angela Merkel the leader of the free world now. Many, many people see the point of you know, European unity and integration uh, you know, given what's happening in the rest of the world in a way that perhaps they didn't fully realise before. They see you know, China to the east of us getting ready to eat our lunch, uh, the United States to the west of us apparently you know, ready to retreat into a fortress America, uh, we need European unity and European strength, partly to project our values, you know, in Europe and in the rest of the world, but also to protect our interests. You know, the European Union was founded after the Second World War as a means of bringing peace to the European continent, and it's done so very, very successfully indeed. It then, through the creation of this vast single market and this sort of vast factory floor uh, 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 on which manufacturing and sophisticated advanced manufacturing takes place across uh, uh, the European Union as a driver of, pro of prosperity, now in the 21st century, it's not just peace and it's not just prosperity uh, that we need Europe for. It's, we need Europe also. Uh, to, to give us power in the world. Mm. Not military power, but soft power, economic power, the ability to stand up for ourselves in the global economy and in the international uh, system. Uh, and we derive that strength, that power, from our unity, from pooling our strength. And I think uh, we need that m more than ever. But it's on a collision course with people who, through disappointment, through a sense that globalization is that flat world of globalization on which we thought people were, you know, operating, you know, on a, you know, on a level playing field with common rules, is now tilting against us. That people are taking advantage of our openness in Europe and the West. Uh, by competing with us on unfair on an unfair basis, indeed, people feel that not only is globalization tilting against us and people are taking unfair advantage uh, uh, of us uh, and not operating you know on the on the same rules uh, as our own countries, but even within our countries, there are people who are powerful and people who have colossal unearned incomes who are taking advantage uh, uh, of the rules in order to 
uh, you know, make themselves better off at the expense of everyone else in society. There's this a real grievance, sense of grievance, which I completely understand, but, I, but to which I do not believe that nationalism, hatred of foreigners and other countries, as opposed to patriotism, which is about love of your country, nationalism is about hatred of others. And it's not a set of grievances which populist slogans and rhetoric are an answer either, whether they be of the right or the left. Now that's why I say the centre ground in politics has got to renew itself. It's got to re-equip itself. It's got to reinvigorate itself with fresh arguments, fresh policies, which are about the future, not the past, and don't land us, as I say, up in simply defending a status quo, which in many, many respects is indefensible. And people know it, and they reject it. And they want change, and they want improvement. And if we're in the centre ground, the people not to offer it, then the extremists will. That's what we've got to fight against. And we've got to do so with a, a strength, a confidence, a passion, an emotional connection with people that for the last few years, frankly, we've lost. I could uh, talk to you about all of this for a very, very long time, but you have a very uh, short time frame upon which uh, um, we're grateful for you to take the time out of your busy schedule to come onto Pot on the Hill. It's been great to be with you. Today, Peter. I mean, I've, I, this is, believe it or not, I'm ashamed to say is uh, my first visit to Australia. I've been wanting to come, meaning to come, on the verge of coming with planned visits for very many years, and I finally made it. And I was so, so lucky to arrive on my first day in Melbourne, uh, uh, the other Saturday, to go to the, the grand final. MCG, to go to the, cup, to, to the grand final and see the Richmond Tigers. Uh, score their huge triumph and I shouted myself hoarse I have my yellow and black scarf still with me I'm really proud to wear it it was an absolutely amazing day uh, an introduction to Australia that I could not have dreamed of and uh, that's why I really like uh, um, the, the, the idea of um, playing uh, 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 for you uh, as my parting uh, gift uh, to you um, the club song <laughs> of the Tigers Tigerland oh, that's been sung a lot in the streets of Richmond on Saturday <laughs> night I can guarantee you isn't it great it was such a gr it's such a great day yeah well, I, look, I, I First time in 37 years. I don't think that you could pick a better quintessential Melbourne day than to come to the, uh, the MCG with 100,000 other Melbourne Victorians <laughs> celebrating in what is truly our Indigenous game. So right. it's been great having you on the show. Thanks. It's really been nice talking to you. Um, and uh, just a quick reminder to our listeners, don't forget, if you want to donate to our by-election campaign in Northcote, uh, please uh, go to thisislabor.org forward slash donate Claire. And if you want to volunteer on our grassroots campaign in the inner city seat of Northcote for the November 18 by-election, go to thisislabor.org forward slash Claire. 
um, and uh, one of our organisers will give you a call. Thanks very much for listening to Pot on Hill this week. Remember, you can uh, download each episode every week uh, on your favourite podcast app. Um, I'm loving the uh, tigers in the background. That's brilliant. Um, and uh, for all the latest Labor news, uh, be sure to follow Victorian Labor on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Um, and uh, we're going to get the, the, the Fennecum original version of Tigerland to go out with Peter. <laughs> Safe trip home. Enjoy the rest of your time in Melbourne. And, Thanks very uh, much. And don't be a stranger. Tiger of old, the strong and we're bold, but we're from time.